As you would know, if you've been around our church for very long at all, uh, our normal practice is to systematically uh, work our way through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, uh, in our, our preaching. Uh, last year, we preached through 2 Samuel, uh, chapters 1 through to 12, and uh, today we pick up the series again, and we're picking it up in chapter 13, which is uh, the next chapter, uh, and we'll be working through the, the second half of 2 Samuel in the coming, uh, the coming weeks and months. Uh, as we see the downhill demise of the house of David. And uh, I should just uh, warn you that this is a fairly confronting passage in terms of its content. Um, And so just to prepare you uh, for that, the Bible uh, presents the reality of human sin, uh, warts and all, so to speak. Let's, um, Let's read God's word. 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister, Tamar, that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimeah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of those wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. 
She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, neither good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. Uh, he would not, he would only be a, sorry, we would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent him, uh, sent with him, uh, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, Strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up and mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground and all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab son of the, uh, said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai. Son, uh, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Adam is going to come in now and preach. Uh, God's word to us, but um, some of you may not know Adam. Um, Adam is our student minister of our parish. Hi. Um, and uh, where are you normally on a Sunday morning, at Adam? Uh, normally at Gladeswood Hills on Sunday morning and then uh, go to night church at the Hub. Yep. Excellent, but uh, you're here to preach God's word to us this morning. That's right. And uh, very excitingly, Annie and Ezra are here. Annie, could, could you wave your hand? <laughs> and Ezzy's there as well. There we are. <laughs> yep. So please um, do say hello to Annie and, and Ezra and uh, to Adam later on, but um, I'll hand over to you. Thanks. Thank well, we should pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tough passage. 
uh, and we don't have time to uh, think and talk about everything, but we do pray, Father, that you would speak to us uh, through your word uh, with the things that we look at. Uh, we do pray that you would help us to um, uh, be comforted by you as we uh, confront some difficult topics, uh, and we do pray that uh, at the end we would see um, your goodness to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, apologies if my voice gives out or I need to take a sip from one of my many drinks. Uh, it's been a doozy of a week. Um, I wonder if uh, I wonder what you would say if you had to turn to the person next to you. I won't get you to do it. Um, but if you wanted to share something about your parents, which you see in yourself, either which you're thankful for or which you could change, have a moment to think about it. What would you say? What are you thankful for that you see in yourself from your parents? Or what, would you, what do you wish you could change? Inevitably, our parents, our family of origin, what life was like growing up, well, of course, it has some bearing on the way uh, that we are, doesn't it? For better or for worse. When Annie and I were preparing for marriage, uh, we knew that cultural differences in our families of origin uh, would have some bearing on the way that we relate uh, in our family and especially what conflict looks like. But I, I don't think we really um, experienced how much it affects us until we had our son Ezra. And it's not his fault, but um, certainly children uh, change uh, the way that we relate a little bit. Um, and we certainly didn't realize before we were married how much uh, that would affect us and the way that we relate. I can see um, as well that having both of us, sadly, having parents who've separated um, affects our views of marriage and relationships and fidelity. Um, but for us, as we desperately don't want to follow the same road. But the way that we end up is not inevitable. Neither Annie nor I grew up in Christian homes. Yet, by God's kindness and grace, he saved both of us and changed us so that we don't just reflect the values and lives of our parents. So today, as we head back into 2 Samuel uh, this year, as we finish this series at church, um, we're going to start to see an undoing of David's kingdom and family. We'll see the tragedy of the sins of the father David, setting the pattern for the behavior and the relationships in the royal family. The sins of the father are just like the sins of the son. So I've called today's sermon, Like Father, Like Son, and you'll see an outline on the back of your handout. One of the major themes as well in the stories of David and his family uh, in this part of 2 Samuel is precisely the unavoidable link between his public and private life in the ruling family. What occurs in David and in his family sets the trajectory for the people of God. Now, King David is king over Israel, and this is meant to be the high point in Israel's history. And yet, sin is already making its ugly mark and beginning to undo some of the blessings of God upon his people. But these chapters are not completely devoid of hope. God promises to keep his word to David to establish his kingdom. And with Solomon already introduced at the end of our last series in chapter 12, it's clear that whatever is accomplished in these chapters, a central element is the succession to the throne and the continuation of David's kingship and his family. 
even if it is already marred by human failing. So we're going to get going. Uh, we'll go maybe two slides along and talk about the sins of the Father. Are we? Yep, there we go. So in order to understand our passage to, uh, better today, we're going to take a look back at chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel to understand the sins of the Father, King David. So you can flip back in your Bibles to chapter 11 if you like, or you can just follow along on the dot points on the screen. In chapter 11, verse 1, we see that something is already off. It says that David stayed in Jerusalem at the time when kings normally go off to war. We're going to see later that David is unfortunately asleep at the wheel in both his role as a king and we'll see in his role as a father. He's asleep on the battlefield and he's asleep at home. And we see in chapter 11 that since David isn't busy doing his job, instead he seems bored and he longs for pleasure and satisfaction. And so one evening, David gets up from his bed and he goes and walks around aimlessly on the roof of his palace. From there, he spots a woman, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She's bathing. And so he decides that he will take her and sleep with her and then send her back home. And then David covers up his sin by getting his commander Joab to orchestrate the killing of Bathsheba's husband Uriah by sending him on a suicide mission on the battlefield. David doesn't even do the dirty deed himself, but he is fully responsible. Then we see that David indicts himself before the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells him a parable and David says, asks and asks David, what, what should happen? And so David says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then David said to Nathan, you are the man. So this then is the consequence of David's sin. David will pay four times over and even more for his sin. And so Nathan prophesies 11 verse 10 now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Sorry, 12 verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity or evil on you. And so the following chapters in 2 Samuel from chapter 13 onwards that we're looking at today are the fulfillment of this interaction with Nathan, the fulfillment of this prophecy. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And while David does not die for his sin, the child Bathsheba bore him does at the end of chapter 12. But the tragedy continues in the sins of the sons. Go to the next slide. Chapters 13 to 20 show this evil from David's house that Nathan announced to David, and it centers around the rebellion of his son, Absalom. You should remember his name. As we look at chapter 13 today, of all the sad stories that we find in the historical books in the Bible, this is one of the saddest. Of all the stories about outrageous violence against women, it's one of the most outrageous. 
But this account demonstrates at least two truths. First, that God's prophetic word is true. And second, that the sins of one generation will imprint on the next generation, like father, like son. Each sin not only fosters more sin, but it also fashions it by setting precedence for others to follow. So we need to go to the first son, Amnon. This chapter, it continues the tragic chain of sin that David began in chapter 11, as David's firstborn son and heir to the throne commits an incestuous rape. There are parallels between King David's sin and that of his son. They're numerous. Both committed immoral acts outside of marriage with a beautiful woman in the privacy of their own residences. Both women experience great grief because of the men's actions. And ultimately, both transgressions brought about death for sons of David. There are still further echoes here in chapter 13 of other earlier accounts in the Bible of sexual abuse. This story actually shares language with Shechem's rape of Dina in Genesis 34. Potiphar's wife's attempt to force herself on Joseph in Genesis 39. And even the Levites violated concubine in Judges 19. This tragic account now places a thing that was described as should not happen in Israel, in the very family that ought to be preventing it happening. There's my tea bag. That's awkward. While the first verse in our passage, verse 1, mentions the word love, nothing here goes as might be expected in a love story. Tamar, she's caught between powerful men. We have the cousin, Jonadab, who plots how to lure her to Amnon's side. Her father, David, who then acts as her procurer. Her brother, who rapes her. And then another brother, who then appears to silence her. Tamar is a young woman who visits a friend, a relative, with a plate full of food because he is not feeling well. And she gets violated for her efforts and thrown off the premises because her rapist loads her more than even first lusted for her. This account of both rape and incest, the brother-sister relationship between Tamar and Amnon is referred to a dozen times. And the deceit makes it quite clear that both young men knew that what they were plotting was wrong. This was no spur of the moment. It was deliberate and well-planned assault on a defenseless woman. There wasn't any consideration at all in their minds about what their effect of their plan might have on Tamar. That was irrelevant. See, Amnon was following in his father's footsteps. He lusted, and so he took. The repercussions of David's sin go on and on. Just like in many Middle Eastern cultures today, it's quite likely that it would have been normally unthinkable for Tamar to be allowed to visit Amnon in his private quarters. However, Jonadab, his cousin, rightly predicts that David could be persuaded to make an exception. And so verse 6, Amnon lies about being sick, and he requests that his sister make him some kind of dumpling soup for his illness. The, the translation 
baked bread is probably less accurate than dumpling soup, which makes a lot more sense. And so in verse 7, David is now implicated in the plot and he sends his daughter in to her abuser. Eventually, by verse 11, they're in the room together, alone, and Amnon grabs hold of Tamar and demands that he, she sleep with him. Now, Tamar resisted. She resisted both verbally and physically. Her first word in response to her brother's sinful request was no, verse 12. In fact, Tamar said no at least three, if not four times. There's no doubt here that she was unwilling. This offence was against her as well as against the law. Like his father David, Amnon is abusing his power to satisfy his lusts. Now, intercourse between brother and sister, even half-brother and half-sister, was explicitly forbidden in Leviticus 18.9. The rape is described as a wicked thing, verse 12, that should not be done in Israel. Tamar's use of these particular phrases, they allude to the account of Shechem's rape of Dinah in Genesis 34. It forced Amnon to put in his mind, at least momentarily, back into the law and to consider the end result of Shechem's and therefore his own actions, which in both cases is death. But Amnon does not respect Tamar's repeated no, nor does he heed Tamar's warnings about God's law. But like father, like son, Amnon takes with no regard for his victim or for God's law. Now, after the rape in verse 15, Amnon's great love of Tamar suddenly turns to an intense hatred, more than he ever loved her. Clearly, the love at the beginning, if we hadn't already realized, was not in fact love, but pure lust. Amnon wanted the virgin Tamar, not the defiled woman that he had now made her. And cruelly, he commands her to get up and get out. His hatred and contempt is surely a supreme example of blame the victim mentality, isn't it? He calls her this woman, where previously she had been my sister. It reminds us of David back in chapter 11. Even after we know Bathsheba's name and after David has slept with her and she's sent back home, she's still referred to as the woman. Just as, David's, just as David, his father, had taken advantage of a woman and then used his power to command someone else to implement his cruelty, now Amnon calls his personal servant, verses 17 and 18, and commands Tamar's ejection from his quarters like a prostitute. Tamar's thrown out. Verse 19, she publicly reveals her grief and defilement putting ashes on the head, tearing of one's clothes, covering the head with a hand or garment. These are all classic expressions of grief and humiliation. Before long, of course, David hears about this in verse 21, and he's angry. But he does nothing for Tamar or to Amnon. Neither as a king nor as a parent did David take any action to punish Amnon or to alleviate Tamar's situation. David becomes furious, but that's it. 
This is the first time we've seen David in relationship with his children. And a picture comes into focus of a father who is unwilling to interfere in his son's pleasures. Just as in chapter 11, David was asleep as a king on the battlefield, and he is asleep as both a king and a father at home. But the elephant in the room here is David's own taking of a woman who was not his to take. David's abuse of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, well, this offence occurred in the royal family, the very family tasked with upholding the law of God in Israel. How could David bring the rule of law against his son when there were so many similarities to his own sin? Well, in verse 20, there's someone who turns up just at the right moment, someone who immediately discerns what's gone wrong. Tamar's brother, Absalom. He's mentioned first back in verse 1, and he asks, has your brother Amnon been with you? Now, the fact that Absalom has this information, it may show that Amnon's desire may have even been known in the palace, but that no one has done anything to protect Tamar from her fate. If this is the case, David's involvement in the plot is all the more devastating. It appears there is, though, some closeness between Absalom and Tamar. In verse 20, Absalom acts with compassion and he takes Tamar into his house. Later, he'll name his daughter after her. And in verse 22, Absalom hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. But Absalom's words, be quiet now amount to urging her to not make the matter public. Don't take this thing to heart, he says, verse 20. Perhaps this is because he'll deal with it on her behalf. Or even perhaps Absalom, in his own selfishness, recognises that Amnon, his brother, is before him in the line of succession. And this could be an excuse to remove him so that Absalom becomes the heir. The narrator doesn't tell us, but the rest of the story throughout 2 Samuel seems to say that. It could have been a bit of both. But Tamar's weeping is the last we hear from her. For Absalom sadly does what those in the circle of a raped woman often do, whether they're friend or family. He hushes her. Sadly, friends, sexual violence from a friend or an acquaintance, or a lover, is as common today as it was in the past. According to the ABS, 87% of women who were sexually assaulted knew their perpetrator. One person who's experienced it describes the aftermath like this. For me, to be raped was to be powerless, helpless, and to be made to feel utterly alone. Well-intentioned friends weren't equipped or to be supportive for as long as I needed them. People didn't know what to say, so they said nothing at all. They avoided me, perhaps for fear of saying the wrong thing. Their silence echoed in my mind. I felt... Oh, sorry. I felt that I didn't fit in in the world that I knew anymore. I'm going to have to stop reading that. 
Friends, if you need any support in this area, if you have suffered or know of someone who has, please be assured that if you need to chat to any of our staff, we will listen and believe you and not hush you. Wow. <clears throat> please know that if you've suffered abuse in this way, you are not to blame and that this behaviour is not okay. Friends, while we see an account of this here in the Bible, it does not mean that God approves or condones this kind of abuse. See, even though Tamar's feelings are ignored by Amnon and the other men in the account, they are noted by God. Perhaps the one encouraging here, thing here in this passage for women in particular, the one element of light in the dark tunnel of this account is the deep insight given by the narrator in helping us to hear Tamar. Mary J. Evans, a commentator, puts it like this. Amnon, the surrounding society, and even David might have thought her feelings irrelevant. But the writer, and by implication God himself, most certainly did not. We see Tamar as a person in her own right. We note her generous nature as she cooks for her supposedly sick brother. We feel her incredulity turn to dismay as she realises what his intentions are. We sense her dismay turn to hopeless desperation as it becomes clear that Amnon has no intention of listening to reason. We watch her despair turn to inconsolable misery and self-loathing as she's thrown out and becomes indeed a desolate woman, permanently isolated in her brother Absalom's house. We notice the pride with which she first wore her richly ornamented robe as she approached the house. It proclaimed her as one of the most eligible women in the country. We weep with her as she rips her clothes and covers herself with ashes, her great shame apparent to all. There is no lessening of her misery, but there is nevertheless some comfort in realising that this woman was known. This woman did count. It's serious stuff. The first half of our chapter began with love and finished with hatred. We don't have to wait to see long how that hatred expresses itself. Because in the second half of our chapter, in verse 23, the narrator immediately plunges us two years into the future. Her brother Absalom finally takes matters into his own hands not because he was impatient with the slow turning of the wheels of his father's justice, but rather with the fact that the wheels of his father's justice were not turning at all. Ironically, though, he follows right into his father's footsteps. From here onwards, Absalom is, Absalom is the main person to notice in the following chapters of 2 Samuel. Notice even that at the very beginning of the chapter, Tamar is introduced as Absalom's sister, not as David's daughter. Verse 23, two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Now, sheep shearing for them was a time of feasting, and it's not really clear whether Absalom has orchestrated this whole episode to take revenge on Amnon, 
or whether he's just kind of been biding his time and he goes, oh, an opportunity has come up. There are, however, remarkable similarities between Absalom's plan for revenge and Amnon's original plan, whether or not deliberately on Absalom's part. Certainly, the Bible points it out. Deceit is used to put the victim in a vulnerable position. David, again, is involved, this time ensuring that Amnon is led into the trap. And like with David's sins, those serving Absalom are the ones to orchestrate the crime. So Absalom plans in verse 28 to get Amnon drunk and order his men to strike him. Now Absalom's servants apparently balked at the order to commit murder, fair enough. But Absalom encouraged them, do not be afraid. The same thing he'd encouraged his father David had encouraged his servant Joab when he had Uriah killed. Like David before him, Absalom now gives the order for murder. And so the words of the prophet are fulfilled. The sword will never depart from your house. Back one slide, please. Like father, like son, David's sins of sexual abuse and murder have characterized the lives and deaths of his sons. Now, the initial report King David received about the tragic incident, it's woefully inaccurate. David's told in verse 30, that all of the king's sons had died at the hands of Absalom, that not one of them is left, which is not true at all. The king's first reaction, though, in verse 31 to this horrifying report is to tear his clothes in a classic expression of grief and distress. It parallels that of his own daughter, Tamar. But we hear nothing of those actions by David after that incident. As David grieves... Nathan's words from chapter 12, verse 10, about this sword of judgment that would never depart from his house must surely have come flooding back for David. How could they not? Now, this section resounds with the word dead. Next slide. As it did in 2 Samuel 12, 18 to 19. This is when the child of David and Bathsheba died because of David's sin. You'll see it on the screen. Died, dead, 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 dead dead six times in just two verses and now again in our chapter death is the word which saturates the end counting Uriah three deaths have been the consequence of adultery and rape not counting Uriah David's own fourfold judgment against himself has now taken two of his sons and another two will die at a later time the entire episode you'll see ends with the word death. The divine punishment, God's divine punishment for the sins of the father have played out in the father's own likeness at the murderous orders of his son. Friends, this whole account, you can go next slide, thanks. This whole account reveals the tragedy that the sins of David have set the pattern for behavior and relationships in his family and, by extension, the people of God. Like father, like son. David has failed in his role as a king and father, and the implications are disastrous. A daughter violated, another son dead, and a third in exile. 
And over the next few chapters as we go through, we'll continue to see an unraveling of David's kingship and family. But I want to draw our attention to some final implications. You see them on the screen. The first is that we see that divine justice is satisfied even when human justice fails. See, Nathan's prophecies against David are being fulfilled. The sword has not departed from David's house, and out of his own household, God has brought disaster on him. Even though David, as God's king, has failed to bring either of his sons to justice, but this failure of human justice, even by God's appointed king, does not impede divine justice. But the second thing we see is that divine discipline can be painful when God allows the children to repeat the sins of the parents. David's crimes of sexual sin and murder are repeated in Amnon and Absalom's sins. God has judged David by allowing his sin to be punished in the following generation. David's sin planted seeds for what subsequently happens in the family, like father, like son. But God uses the sins of David's sons to discipline David. This is particularly painful for David as he watches the destruction of his family and for his children as they suffer, especially for Tamar, whose life has been ruined by her father's and her brother's sins. See, human sin typically brings about with it collateral damage. Innocent people suffer because of the evil actions of others. Now, God has used this as discipline, but we need to see that at every step, Amnon and Absalom are acting according to their own sin. They are fully responsible for their actions. This kind of discipline can be painful for us when we see our children repeating our sins and we feel the shame and distress as we see them walk in exactly the same failures that we have. I tell you what, I fear this for my son Ezra. I pray desperately that he will not repeat the same failures as I have. And so this should teach us all the more to grieve sin and the way that it affects not only us, but those around us, those who come after us. It should teach us to repent of our sin and to live a new life. But the third implication is really important. We have been adopted by a new father in heaven. In this particularly distressing account, it's easy to feel like things are hopeless, but they are not. There is a son in David's line who is just like his father, and it is the best thing we could ever hope for. In John 5.19, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. See, friends, Jesus perfectly images 
his heavenly father, the holy, righteous, and perfect God. And in Christ, like father, like son, takes on a whole new image. If we are in Christ, we must remember that we don't just have earthly fathers or mothers that we take after, but we have a new father in heaven. 1 John 3 says this, See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know him, does not know us, is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are children of God, of our Father in heaven. So we can now take after him instead. We are not bound by sin, but we become more and more like our brother Christ and like our Father in heaven as his spirit works in us. We're not yet perfected, but we trust Jesus and we long for the day when we will be conformed to his image. And so, friends, the last thing for us to take away is to walk in a way that we want to impart to others. Whether you're a father or mother with children, or whether you're a spiritual father or mother to people who look up to you, who you disciple, live in a way that models Christ-likeness to those who look up to you. It's not all on you. We have a new father in heaven. But our father does use us to model what following him looks like. The effects of sin are real, long-lasting, and reach beyond ourselves. But so are the effects of godliness. So walk in the way of our heavenly father, in the footsteps of Jesus, so that what we pass on to others is what he has passed on to us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a confronting and emotional passage. We pray for anyone amongst us who has experienced this kind of abuse or knows someone who has. Please be their comfort. We know that you hear us in our deepest grief. Heavenly Father, we, though, see a wonderful picture of your son, Jesus, who walks perfectly in your footsteps. Father, thank you that when we are united to him and adopted as your children, we now can grow in Christ-likeness so that the sins of those who've gone before us are not inevitable in our lives. We pray by the work of your spirit to change us so that we might walk differently, imaging you, and so impart that to others also. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.